The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. How's the new speak committee? Working overtime. Plus big wastage is an adjective. Plus big problem is timing the language to scientific advance. Yes. It's a beautiful thing, the destruction of words. Well, the revolution will be complete when the language is perfect. It's an encouraging thought that by 2050, not a single person will be able to have a conversation like this. Except the proles. The proletariat don't count their animals. Double plus good, this. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, March 1st, 2018. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be a beautiful thing, the destruction of words, says the character in our opener taken from the movie 1984. Unfortunately, that Orwellian warning has only served to inspire today's liberals and conservatives alike to do exactly that. (laughs) So today's theme is once again about epistemology and how the power of language is the primary thing in what determines the political direction in which we move. And under that thematic umbrella, we'll just look at a few of the exhibits from the words race and racism to the ongoing leadership debate within Ontario's PC party to the issue of bus rapid transit, which is as oxymoronic a term that one could invent to describe something that is simply not so. Included in our discussion today will be some of the comments and feedback we've received on some of these issues recently, which we will begin with right after I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past broadcasts. Got this feedback from Bill F. in response to our show with Salim Mansour a couple weeks ago referring to crap hole countries. And he cites Robert Vaughn asking the question, quote, has race taken on a different meaning than the meaning from the dictionary, end quote. And Bill responds that the answer is no. Something different is happening due to the nature of words in English. Like almost all of the languages of Europe, English is an Indo-European language. And Indo-European languages are concrete bound. That is, their vocabulary is comprised of concretes rather than roots. New words are often derived from root words to express related meanings, most often by a process called inflection, in which the word ending is inflected, like the word changed. However, the words thus derived are concretes, and they are defined separately in dictionaries. From then on, keeping the meaning of these concretes from changing over time and becoming disconnected from the root word from which they were derived in the first place is no easy task. Recall that though the word terrific was derived from the word terror in the same manner as horrific was derived from horror, almost no one uses terrific according to its original correct meaning. Instead, almost everyone uses it wrongly. 
By the same process, the left is disconnecting the meaning of racism from its root word race. Such a change is far more easily accomplished in English than in its Indo-European relatives because English is anarchic. Where other Indo-European languages have an official body able to say authoritatively that such changes are gibberish, and to provide official definitions of words consistent with their derivation, English has no such protection against the plague of semantic drift. Consequently, anything goes in English, and so in English the left can pervert the plain meaning of words, such as marriage and racism, with ease, just as they already did with gay, and no effective way to stop them exists, because such shifts of meaning over time are widely but wrongly thought to be part and parcel of a living language, end quote. Well, English has been called a living language, just as Latin has been called a dead language, which is why they like to use Latin in prescriptions, so that no mistakes can be made, you know, because they're always looking at the root of that word. A lot of what Bill says has some merit, but I don't know that you can really argue that English is that archaic and that you can't actually have a authoritative root to these words, because the, the authority is reality. The authority is reason. Jack S. writes, and he offered this compelling thought, quote, The protector of meaning is objective definition. To attack human values, you must attack and destroy their definitions. And then he cites an excellent article on the subject from the March 2013, The Deconstruction of Marriage by Daniel Green. Quote, The left social deconstruction program is a war of ideas and concepts. Claims of equality are used to expand institutions and ways of living until they are so broad as to encompass everything and nothing. And once a thing encompasses everything, once a rose represents everything rising out of the ground, then it also represents nothing at all. Deconstruction is a war against definitions, borders, and parameters. It is a war against defining things by criminalizing the limitation of definitions. With inclusivity as the mandate, exclusivity in marriage or in any other realm quickly meets with social disapproval and then becomes a hate crime. If the social good is achieved only through maximum inclusivity and infinite tolerance, then any form of exclusivity from property to person to ideas is a selfish act that refuses the collective impulse to make all things into a common property with no lasting meaning or value. As Orwell understood in 1984, Tyranny is essentially about definitions. It is hard to fight for freedom if you lack the word. It's hard to maintain a marriage if the idea no longer exists. Orwell's Oceana made basic human ideas into contradictory things. The left deconstruction of social values does the same thing to such essential institutions as marriage, which becomes an important, impermanent thing of no fixed nature or value. The left's greatest trick is making things mean the opposite of what they do. Stealing is sharing. Crime is justice. Property is theft. Each deconstruction is accompanied by an inversion so that a thing, once examined, comes to seem the opposite of what it is, and once that is done, no longer has the old innate value but a new, quote-unquote, enlightened one. To deconstruct man, you deconstruct his beliefs and then his way of living. You deconstruct freedom until it means slavery. You deconstruct peace until it means war. You deconstruct property until it means theft. And you deconstruct marriage until it means a physical relationship between any group of people for any duration. And that's the opposite of what marriage is. 
end quote. Of course, it's not just the words race and racism and marriage and issues like that that have taken on different meanings, but just about any word that relates to politics, including the words liberal, conservative, democratic, and words of a similar category. I have many conservative friends and acquaintances, and we share many common ideas and outlooks. You've heard a lot of them on this show before. But you know, funnily enough, when election time rolls around, suddenly very essential differences between us surface. And not necessarily differences over some given values we might share, but differences especially about how political change is brought about. And by political change, I am not referring to simply a change in personality from one socialist party to another. I I don't see that as change at all. What I mean by political change is something more akin to actual political improvement for the people in the sense of bettering everyone's ability to live and be in charge as much as possible of their own destinies and lives. That is what freedom and capitalism are all about and that is what they have delivered whenever practiced. Three shows back, I directly addressed conservatism's progressive disintegration, citing the wake of Ontario Progressive Conservative Party leader Patrick Brown's resignation due to those anonymous allegations of sexual misconduct. And, of course, we covered all that in the past. Don't want to get back to that. But the point is, the Progressive Conservative Party here in Ontario, the, the issue is that it's falsely viewed by many as a party on the right, and it is no such thing. And even among conservatives themselves, there's little consensus about what conservative values are or which conservative politician actually represents these values. You sure see that coming out in this leadership debate from which, by the way, Patrick Brown re-entered and then exited again since we last spoke about this. Now, one of the people I addressed in a previous broadcast, the one I'm talking to, was Arthur M., who on February 16th wrote that While the Freedom Party has an admirable platform, most people in Ontario have never even heard of the party, much less the platform. And he points to the example of the Green Party as being a party that's been around for ages, only ever ever got one person elected, and asks, how many people do you know who are against the environment? And I guess by that he means, again, that the Green Party is very ineffective and will never go anywhere, when in fact, it's exactly the opposite. All of the parties have adopted the Green Party's issues. He writes that Doug Ford is hardly an ideal candidate, but then again, who is? It's Freedom Party and party leader Paul McKeever. I mean, here's a guy who already said Freedom Party has the admirable platform, but apparently not admirable enough to support. He's going to support a platform that is exactly the opposite. Now, a lot of this comes out of the belief that for a third party to emerge is almost an impossibility because we're in a two-party system. It's just that it's not a two-party system. It's a two-sided polarity. We've been calling it left and right. It's not liberal conservative, because you can have everybody who calls himself liberal, conservative, Democrat, whatever, on one side or the other side of that left and right equation. Salim Mansour, for example, points out how old democracies such as Canada, Britain, the U.S., point out that new parties emerging to make any significant difference within the traditionally established party system is very improbable. Canada, like Britain and the U.S., have been a two-party system, and he says that the third party in Canada, the CCF-NDP, occurred under special circumstances, referring to depression and war. I would not consider the CCF and NDP that much of a third party, but a branch of the second party. 
But he does say that this arrangement further suggests that in a two-party system, the most important political element treasured by the electorate is stability. And I agree with that. What I don't agree with is his contention that you can change a system from within those existing parties. Been there, done that, tried it, seen a lot of other people try it too. For 30 years I watched that. It doesn't work. I would suggest that Freedom Party should be one of the two parties and the rest can be the other party because they're all the same anyway. Isn't that where the division is? The two-party system is the embodiment of left and right, the polarity that must exist if indeed we're to have any choices at all. Choices are all about digital. Yes, no, yes, no. You don't get a choice in the middle. The reality is that right now we have a one-party system, with the one party having three or more names, liberal, conservative, new democrat, all on the left. There is no opposition on the right, neither here in Ontario nor in the United States, where the so-called conservatives have been the biggest proponents of socialism and everything that is left. Conservatives have utterly divorced themselves from any meaningful issues and appear content to live in any sort of dictatorship so long as it's being run by those who call themselves conservatives. There's nothing inherent in voting for a third party that in any way affects the two-sided polarity that exists in politics. Collectivism on the one side, individualism on the other. Freedom on the one side, tyranny on the other. Capitalism on the one side, state control and management of the economy on the other. And on all of these counts, conservatives are as left as their supposed opponents. So if your attitude always is my party right or wrong, then you can count on the fact that your party will embark on the wrong path, since that always means offering something for nothing to some people while punishing the sacrificed by giving them nothing for something. Taken from a speech that she gave at Princeton University way back in December of 1960, I can now speak from personal experience and from both theory and practice that every word that Ayn Rand says rings utterly true. I shall begin by asking you to consider a hypothetical situation. If some science fiction dictator ordered men to hold an election with a new kind of secret ballot in which the thing kept secret were the identity of the issue and people had to vote for or against a political system without knowing what it was or how it worked, you would say that this is a fantastic, preposterous farce. But suppose that such an election took place in a free country where people came voluntarily to vote for or against an unnamed political system without knowing its nature, without wanting to know, where those on one side did not have the courage to admit what it was that they were upholding, and those on the other side did not dare to announce what it was that they were destroying, and thus they cast their ballots, determining their future and the fate of a system that remained unknown, unnamed, undefended. What would you say about it? Don't say that it is a fantasy. It is history. You have lived through an election of that kind. There was only one issue, one political system at stake in the last presidential election, but it did not appear on any ballot and it was not represented by either party. Yet everybody knew it, everybody voted for or against it, but nobody wanted to mention its name. Its name was capitalism. The candidates of both parties stress the fact with which everybody seems to agree that the world is facing a deadly conflict 
and that we must fight to save civilization. But what is the nature of that conflict? Like most of today's intellectual leaders, both candidates answered, it is a conflict between communism and... and what? Blank out. It is a conflict between two ways of life, they answered, the communist way and what? Blank out. It is a conflict between two ideologies, they answered. What is our ideology? Blank out. The truth which both candidates refuse to face and to admit is that the world conflict of today is the last stage of the struggle between capitalism and socialism, and that the whole world knows it. The most helplessly ignorant shopkeeper on any corner of any street on earth knows it in his own simple terms, though he is unable to discuss political theory. Any illiterate peasant knows it in any Russian-occupied country when he dies fighting in desperate bewilderment for his right to his scraggly patch of soil. Every American voter knew it in this past election, but the political leaders of both parties were the only ones who pretended not to see and who went through the shabby ritual of promising mankind free speech, free factories, free medicine and free lunches all to come from the American treasury as if the masses of mankind were, in fact, the looting parasites of the socialist's fancy. We stand for freedom, said both candidates, and proceeded to declare what kind of controls, regulations, coercions, taxes, and sacrifices they would impose, what arbitrary powers they would demand, what social gains they would hand out to various groups without specifying from what other groups these gains would be expropriated. Neither party cared to admit that government control of a country's economy, any kind or degree of such control by any group for any purpose whatsoever, rests on the basic principle of socialism, the principle that man's life belongs to the state. A mixed economy is merely a semi-socialized economy, which means a semi-enslaved society which means a country torn by irreconcilable contradictions in the process of gradual disintegration. Freedom, in a political context, means freedom from government coercion. It does not mean freedom from the landlord or freedom from the employer or freedom from the laws of nature which do not provide men with automatic prosperity. It means freedom from the coercive power of the state and nothing else. The world conflict of today is the conflict of the individual against the state, the same conflict that has been fought throughout mankind's history. The names change, but the essence and the results remain the same, whether you call it the individual against feudalism or against absolute monarchy or against communism or fascism or Nazism or socialism or the welfare state. If one upholds freedom, one must uphold men's individual rights, if one upholds man's individual rights, one must uphold his right to his own life, to his own liberty, to the pursuit of his own happiness, which means one must uphold a political system that guarantees and protects these rights, which means the political-economic system of capitalism. Individual rights, freedom, justice, progress were the philosophical values, the theoretical goals and the practical results of capitalism. No other system can create them or maintain them. No other system ever has or will. For proof, consider the nature and function of basic principles. 
for evidence, consult history, and the present state of the different countries of Europe. The issue is not slavery for a good cause versus slavery for a bad cause. The issue is not dictatorship by a good gang versus dictatorship by a bad gang. The issue is freedom versus dictatorship. If the liberals are afraid to identify their program by its proper name, if they advocate every specific step, measure, policy, and principle of socialism, but squirm and twist themselves into semantic pretzels with such euphemisms as the welfare state, the New Deal, the New Frontier, they still preserve a semblance of logic, if not of morality. It is the logic of a con man who cannot afford to let his victims discover his purpose. Besides, the majority of those who are loosely identified by the term liberals are afraid to let themselves discover that what they advocate is socialism. They do not want to accept the full meaning of their goal. They want to keep all the advantages and effects of capitalism while destroying the cause. And they want to establish socialism without its necessary effects. They do not want to know or to admit that they are the champions of dictatorship and slavery. So they evade the issue for fear of discovering that their goal is evil. Immoral as this might be, what is one to think of men who evade the issue for fear of discovering that their goal is good? What is the moral stature of those who are afraid to proclaim that they are the champions of freedom? What is the integrity of those who outdo their enemies in smearing, misrepresenting, spitting at and apologizing for their own ideal? What is the rationality of those who expect to trick people into freedom, cheat them into justice, fool them into progress, con them into preserving their rights, and while indoctrinating them with socialism, put one over on them and let them wake up in a perfect capitalist society some morning? These, ladies and gentlemen, are the so-called conservatives or most of their intellectual spokesmen. One need not wonder why they are losing elections or why this country is stumbling anxiously, reluctantly toward socialism. One need not wonder why any cause represented or upheld in such a manner is doomed. One need not wonder why any group with such a policy does, in fact, declare its own bankruptcy, forfeiting any claim to moral, intellectual, or political leadership. The public pretense which people enact today in order not to name an open secret has reached the level of a farce. During the two months of an election campaign, the country is confronted with two salesmen of socialism who compete in proclaiming by what schemes they will dispose of everybody's life, work and property, both agreeing that everybody's life, work and property are theirs to dispose of. But people do not listen to their speeches any longer. They listen anxiously, hopefully, desperately to the unstated hints and unnamed implications between the lines. And they vote on both sides, not for what they have heard, but for an undefined package deal of hopes and guesses. They do so not because they are unable to think, 
but because the mass of evasions, contradictions, and meaningless superficialities which is offered to them defies any attempt at critical analysis. All public mentions of basic principles or fundamental issues vanish during the campaign in a flood of ponderous trivia. Wow, some powerful stuff there. That was Ayn Rand way back in 1960, December, uh, talking about conservatism, an obituary, something she declared that long ago. And, and things haven't changed, I have to tell you. I have watched everything that she has said there play itself out over and over and over again, and I see it happening again in today's election with the PCs and what I see south of the border, Donald Trump being an, an anomaly in that whole scenario. I'm not too sure that I fully agree with Rand when she noted that the conservatives are worse than the liberals because their goal is good. Well, maybe that was the assumption that their goal was good, but I think that's been a mistake from even before Rand made these comments. And the reason is that I've never run into a conservative goal that I would consider good in the sense of anything that would be in the right direction towards freedom and capitalism, what she's talking about. Not explicitly. Never. Never seen it. So why is it then that there is this assumption that conservatives are even thinking that way? I think her description of what is happening in the, in the political marketplace was accurate, and it's continuing to this day. The disintegration of conservatism, even as a concept itself, is all but over. And the irony is conservative disdain, or perhaps even hatred for a party like Freedom Party, is ironically based on a hatred of the good for being good. I mean, let's face it. When it comes to a party like Freedom Party, we're the good guys. And I'm not saying that to brag, I'm saying that because we are recognized as such by those who are wishing that their party was the good guys and not the bad guys. It's like when somebody says, I like your policies, but, oh, I agree with what you say, but, and on and on it goes, but I'm going to vote for the opposite. I remember Dick Field, who was with the Voice of Canadians and num numerous other groups who has appeared on this show, telling us why the progressive conservatives continually govern the left. And he asked one of his PC representatives one time why he always voted against the correct policies. And the PC told him bluntly, he said, look, I can count on the political support of conservatives no matter what we do. I have to earn the support of the left. So we do everything on the left. And that's literally the truth. It was a very blunt and straightforward answer. The, the, the whole country's turning left, even federally. It's, you can see it everywhere. But hey, it's their party, and they can cry if they want to. And to those conservatives currently debating this issue, the relevance of what the next leader of the PC party will do in terms of political direction or policy is almost next to nil. They'll likely vote PC no matter who leads. What bothers conservatives about their own leadership debate is not political ideology or direction, but who can win votes from non-conservatives so that our party can win. That's exactly what that MPP told Dick Field. Think about all of the inherent contradictions in that scenario alone. Ooh, boy, ain't going there. You know, I heard Andrew Lawton on his CFPL AM uh, 980 talk show last week in respect to the PC leaders debate say, quote, it's not just about who's right, it's about who's electable, end quote. Now, I'm of two minds about that. It depends on context, doesn't it? The argument was both valid and invalid. 
If you're talking about a debate within a party that is already cohesive and already s represents something solid, and that who, no matter who leads, that's the thing they'll represent, then it doesn't matter you know, who, who's right in, in, in that sense. It means who's electable. But if you're still arguing about whether you're going to move left or right, then that's the only thing that matters is who's right. Andrew Lawton had on his show, and I'm, I wish I knew who the woman was, but she was speaking about how the PCs could adopt five policy planks that would go a long way in getting that party elected according to her theory. And I was thinking about Ayn Rand just now talking about ponderous trivia. Not that I would disagree with a lot of these. And her five points were, one, end no-fault insurance, something that's been a Freedom Party plank since before no-fault insurance came into being. Number two, education. She wants to end seniority among teaching and administrative staff. At least that's what I got. But not, not end the education monopoly or the, the whole issue of not giving parents choice. Law and order. She thinks we should appoint more judges because cases are taking too long. And under healthcare, great solution there, provide a copy of your OHIP invoices to patients. <laughs> not a bad thing. We've suggested it, but you can't do that just by itself. That's not going to help. You have to address the budget. And in beer and wine sales, she said that they should allow beer and wine discount prices in some of the monopolized and regulated stores that are now allowed to share the government's monopoly on such sales. She didn't say, let's deregulate. But th this is the difference. This is a conservative trying to talk free market. They just won't go there. Let's face it, it's the conservatives that came up with the idea of power at cost with Ontario Hydro. You know, it's like that communist people before profit ideology. And that was introduced into Ontario by the supposedly capitalistic conservative party. You know, those who are not aware of which philosophies they themselves support will be controlled by those philosophies. But here's a challenge for you. And please write us to tell us if you think you have the answer. Name me one move rightward ever taken by the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario in your lifetime. No further evidence is needed to know that they have written their own obituary. What remains is only the post-mortem in order to identify the causes. The American conservatives, by the generally accepted meaning of the term, are expected to be the advocates of capitalism. But capitalism is what they dare not advocate or defend. They are torn and paralyzed by the profound conflict between capitalism and the moral code which dominates our culture, the morality of altruism. Altruism holds that man has no right to exist for his own sake, that service to others is the only justification of his existence, and that self-sacrifice is his highest moral duty, virtue, and value. Capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They are philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. The American political system was based on a different moral principle, on the principle of man's inalienable right to his own life, which means on the principle that man has the right to exist for his own sake, neither sacrificing himself to others nor sacrificing others to himself, and that men must deal with one another as traders by voluntary choice to mutual benefit. But this moral principle was merely implied in the American political system. It was not stated explicitly, it was not identified, it was not formulated into a full philosophical code of ethics. 
This was the unfulfilled task which remained as a deadly flaw in our culture and which is destroying America today. Capitalism is perishing for lack of a moral base and of a full philosophical defense. The social system based on and consonant with the altruist morality, with the code of self-sacrifice, is socialism in all or any of its variants, fascism, nazism, communism. All of them treat man as a sacrificial animal to be immolated for the benefit of the group, the tribe, the society, the state. Soviet Russia is the ultimate result, the final product, the full consistent embodiment of the altruist morality in practice. It represents the only way that that morality can ever be practiced. Not daring to challenge the morality of altruism, the conservatives have been struggling to evade the issue of morality or to bypass it. This has caused them their confidence, their courage, and their cause. Observe the guilty evasiveness, the apologetic timidity, the peculiarly non-intellectual, non-philosophical attitude projected by most conservatives in their speeches and in their writings. No man and no movement can succeed without moral certainty, without a full rational conviction of the moral rightness of one's cause. of the Imperial Guard. These are the communication codes we'll use for the joint operation. Garals inform me that the Tellarites are also taking part. So they'll need these codes as well. Do what you have to. I appreciate your cooperation. You're not especially difficult to work with, Captain. Unlike Tellarites, you understand ethics and try to live by them. Try? Well, nobody's perfect. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to our financial supporters who've made it possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. You can join us on our journey in the right direction by going to our new Patreon account at patreon.com slash justrightmedia or by visiting our homepage at justrightmedia.org. And by the way, I may not have mentioned it at the beginning of the show, but you can also subscribe to Just Right, not just on iTunes, but also on SoundCloud. You know, listening to Ayn Rand talking about ethics and the whole issue of ethics, you know, the reason people aren't getting along with each other lately anymore, at least it seems more what people are calling polarized, which is not really polarized, it's, it's intolerance almost, is because the left has dispensed with ethics entirely. And remember, the left includes many conservatives who are the leaders and followers of the movement. You really, this is where identity politics has a place. You must identify the party and the people that you vote for, and the party is the place to start. And if it has no identity, then you don't know what you're voting for. So for an actual political alternative, meaning a real change in the political direction of Ontario, Really, the only, the only option at the polls is the Freedom Party of Ontario. And on last week's show, Paul McKeever and I demonstrated why this is so. I mean, after all, it's precisely because the current parties in the legislature can never support a Freedom Party platform that the creation of a Freedom Party became necessary in the first place. 
Now, we got some feedback and comments on our show last week. This one from Tony C., who really had a sarcastic comment to make about the PCs, and he writes, quote, The PC party is presenting Ontarians with so much choice. A man-child seeking his old job, a candidate rejected by the party twice, a xenophobic populist, a neophyte with nothing but a dubious name, and a one-policy candidate. This party will take Ontario far. (laughs) Michael D. responds, I would take any one of these people as the premier over the incompetent Kathleen Wynne. What having one of these candidates will mean if they are the premier is the corrupt and inept Liberal Party of Ontario will no longer be able to screw the population of Ontario with their inefficiency in everything they do. The most recent polls confirm that fact. Even without a permanent leader, the OPC is double digits ahead of Wynn and her band of dysfunctional politicians. Well, there's one of the classic conservative misunderstandings that the Liberals and Kathleen Wynne are incompetent. They are not. That assumes that they're not accomplishing what they set out to do. But it's not so. They're doing exactly what they want to do. Kathleen Wynne is one of the most competent politicians I've ever seen. But she's competent at being evil, at moving in the wrong direction, at moving left. How hard can that be? And if all you're worried about is her incompetence and the fact that they're inefficient, and not worried about, quote, everything they do, because right now they're doing socialism, they're doing communism, they're doing fascism. You want that to be efficient? Who said it that, you know, thank God we don't get all the government we pay for? Count your blessings. Then we have Eric R., who wrote, quote, the left and right is the Kool-Aid that the present two corrupt parties have been feeding its supporters for so long that you actually believe the crap they say is true. Quite frankly, I'm fed up with the BS and the posting of the same on Facebook. You want to make a difference? Start voting different. No majority governments to start. Vote fringe parties and don't let these elitists last longer than one term. (laughs) Okay, Eric. Barry O. LOL. You think Ontario's suffering now? You wait till the cons take over in the next election. Public services? Slash to the bone. Work in health care? Yeah, maybe. Not anymore. Wouldn't be a new government without at least one early waste of money folks can complain about, so let's revisit the sex ed stuff that the majority are fine with. The way the con leadership candidates are treating each other right now shows there's no party unity or respect for each other. But they'll win, and you'll regret it. End quote. Well, that last comment came from someone who appears to be a liberal supporter. But remember, government cutbacks are happening as much under Wynne's liberal rule as any government that's on the verge of, of insolvency. I mean, they all are. Every government, government that moves leftward has to ration, has to constantly proclaim that it's successful. Just listen to the background of what's going on in the opening conversation on our show opener today from 1984. You hear all the statistics of how well the country's doing. It's the same crap we get from our politicians. But even on Canada's federal level, conservatism has crashed. I look at this headline, quote, Sheer vows hard look at bus rapid transit and fast rail cash, reads the February 22nd headline in the London Free Press article penned by Norman de Bono. Quote, A federal conservative government 
would look hard at funding London's bus rapid transit system and also eye high-speed rail to the city, party leader Andrew Shears said Wednesday. Addressing a London Chamber of Commerce event at Western Fair, Shear radiated a nice-guy persona, taking jabs at the governing liberals and making clear tax and spend habits would end on his watch. These are the types of projects a Conservative government would look at. These are the types of tangible projects we have supported in the past, said Shear of Transportation Infrastructure. His government would prioritize public transit, including high-speed rail, as long as the business case is there, he said. I will look at any project that is a positive economic impact and can help us meet our targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions that has a solid business case, said Shear. I, just, <laughs> I sit here and I go, oh my lord, this is terrible. If there's a solid business case, why do we need government funding? Isn't that another conservative contradiction? It makes conservatism look ridiculous. Solid business case and give it to business. The article continues, quote, After the event, Scheer also pledged to support southwestern Ontario manufacturing via the FedDev Ontario program and a federal auto sector investment fund. See how businessy that sounds? <laughs> but it's governmenty. <laughs> Those types of programs that work well will continue, said Scheer. Chamber Chief Executive Jerry McCartney said he wanted to hear more about how a conservative government would counter recent U.S. business tax cuts ends the, the article. I'm just sitting here stymied by this and looking at it, and my jaw's just dropping. I mean, this is so garbage on the left that it's hard to explain it to people. <laughs> you just can't get more left than that. But it's another perfect example of what we heard Ayn Rand criticize and mention earlier. You have to kind of figure out what the unstated hints and implications between the lines are, you know, but you don't, you don't get a direct answer to anything. Yeah, we'll do this if that. We'll do this if it's a business case. It's always a business case. Right and wrong doesn't matter. And this explains why people have to vote the way they do. And I thought that was a great point that Ayn Rand made when she says, we seem to vote stupidly, not because we're unable to think, but because, the mass, because of the massive contradictions, evasions, and meaningless superficialities that are given to us by our politicians. They defy any attempt at critical analysis. You can't analyze them. They're completely off the map. Here's Ayn Rand. It is generally understood that those who support and vote for the conservatives expect them to uphold the system which has been camouflaged by the loose term of the American way of life. The moral treason of the conservative leaders lies in the fact that they are hiding behind that camouflage. They do not have the courage to admit that the American way of life was capitalism, that that was the political-economic system born and established in the United States the system which in one brief century achieved a level of freedom, of progress, of prosperity, of human happiness unmatched in all the other systems and centuries combined, and that that is the system which they are now allowing to perish by silent default. If the conservatives do not stand for capitalism, they stand for and are nothing. They have no goal, no direction, no political principles, no social ideals, no intellectual values, no leadership to offer anyone.
guy loves the picnic basket. <laughs> Excuse me, sir. Could you tell us how to get a taxi? Just take one of the public cars, son. There are three of them right over there. You mean we just take them? Sure. That's what they're there for. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, madame, you have a choice of color. The blue one. Blue it shall be. Shotgun. Golden Bay Rapid Transit. <laughs> Come on, Henry. It doesn't even need a key. Boy, there's a rapid transit fantasy, isn't it? I guess that's the kind of thing Shear wants to support, you think? No, I don't think so. <laughs> that was from the television series Sliders. And if you watch the rest of the episode, you find out that these benefits are literally being paid for by people having to altruistically sacrifice their lives and be put to death. Think about that for a minute. The writers of Sliders knew what they were talking about. But that... Fact aside, the vision of Slider's rapid transit system is far more palatable than what is being proposed for the City of London here. Got my bus rapid transit open house brochure in my mail last week. And I found myself a little surprised by my own reaction to what I would at best call propaganda. But it actually made my blood boil. I got completely pissed off when I saw this brochure and all the BS. Not necessarily lies, but just BS about rapid transit. Meaningless stuff. Meaningless stuff. Just like what Ayn Rand was talking about. And if the brochure was intended to list the benefits of bus rapid transit, BRT, okay, it failed miserably in my case. It did exactly the opposite. Everything listed in that brochure was, to me, a complete negative about BRT. Now, above all, I hate being lied to constantly, over and over and over again. We've covered this issue many times in the past, very critically, with folks like Amir Farahi on the show, who literally know what they're talking about, who are right there on the front lines. And so... I know, I know what a lot of the facts behind the whole BRT issue are, and they aren't any, there aren't any listed in this brochure, by the way. And of course, I also hate being robbed, sacrificed to others who have no concern whatever for those who pay for these things that they get for free. I mean, BRT is not free. This is a, multi, a multi-billion dollar plan they're planning for the city to what, save us two minutes? Is that what they said? Save who two minutes? The people who don't ride the bus now? If you look at the photo on the front page of the brochure, it depicts a very blurry bus or, or train, you know, that's zooming by. It's very blurry to give you that feeling of rapid look. It's moving along at a real high speed. Although it's my understanding that these rapid buses would be traveling at an average speed of 40 kilometers an hour. It's not that they're going fast. They're just going in a monopolized lane. That's what they call rapid. And the buses drive right down the center of the road, especially if you saw the picture in the center of the brochure which is a nightmare, it's a nightmarish scenario for everybody involved, the passengers on the bus, the drivers on each side. It's got to be a complete traffic disaster. I mean, it, it, it's certainly against any rational planning for cities that are meant to be comfortable and meant for people. 
This is just not people stuff. Think think about all the stuff Andres Duaney was saying on so many of our past broadcasts of this show, speaking about municipal planning and public transit. I truly pity and feel for the people who will be forced to have this red elephant destroy their neighborhoods. I, for one, would do anything possible to stay away from any areas where I would have to contend with BRT. It's going to be a disaster from, from a, a, just a, a living style, you know? According to the brochure, quote, BRT means, one, dedicated lanes, lanes that only buses can travel on for more reliable service, two, frequent service with a bus every five to ten minutes during rush hours, three, better connections to local transit with connecting service provided every ten to twenty minutes, four, service is rapid and reliable because buses aren't stuck in congestion with regular traffic. See, that's their way of not saying that they're not going fast. (laughs) And five, Smart signals implemented citywide will lead to shorter commute, commute times and less gridlock for all commuters on buses, in personal vehicles, on bicycles. Yeah, the bicycle gridlock is really one you have to see to believe. <laughs> Haven't seen it yet. Apparently the buses are still part of the gridlock, the same buses that have, been con- you know, that have the connecting service provided every 10 to 20 minutes. But this idea of dedicated lanes, I mean... This doesn't make anything more reliable other than the constant cost overruns at taxpayer expenses that will be incurred. It's a way of monopolizing the roadways and not allowing those who actually pay for the road to use them. That's how I see it. You're forcing the majority to give the minority some super benefit because they are abiding by the socialist rule that you shouldn't be driving your car and you shouldn't be creating CO2 and all that sort of crap, you know? Frequent service with a bus every 5 to 10 minutes during rush hours. During rush hours? I thought they're supposed to almost eliminate rush hours. Why would they even be an issue? I guess the traffic's going to get even worse. Interesting to note that BRT doesn't replace local bus transit. It just adds to the mess. And already local bus transit is being heavily subsidized by taxpayers. They have to give it away to get people to ride on it. Ridership, by the way, for public transit is dropping across the province, dropping everywhere. For, these kind, for this kind of public transit. But these things don't matter to our municipal planners. Talk about other utter, utter BS. But here's yet more. BRT by the numbers, reads one of the panels in the brochure. 84,000 new residents expected in London by 2035, reads one. That would be about 4,000 people per year, and that's residents, not transit riders. Now, if that were 8,400,000 new residents, then maybe something like BRT might be justified, but not even likely if then, especially given all the private and much more efficient options that are arising every day. Another number, 25% more cars are expected on London roadways by 2030. Well, that's a non sequitur in terms of why you want to justify BRT. What if it was only 5%? Would that affect BRT? No? What if it was 50%? Would that affect BRT? Nope. Well, there you go. (laughs) If there actually will be more cars on city streets, then wouldn't the place to invest be in the roadways that serve those cars and the ones already out there on the the roads? Our roads are in terrible shape, folks. And you should have seen the city shut down last week when we had a flood. And many of the major arteries were shut. We haven't even got that issue tackled yet. 
A 35% increase in transit service hours means less waiting for the bus, they say. Well, the very words waiting for the bus sends shivers down my spine. I don't know about you, but I would rather be in a car waiting for the traffic than standing outside waiting for the bus. 230,000 tons less greenhouse gas emissions with BRT. Now, how they know that, I have no idea. What, is, what do they think is being replaced with what? Does that mean? It's, this is meaningless. You know, but here we go, fighting climate change again. And, you know, the so-called greenhouse gas emissions, which they do not name, is probably carbon dioxide, a non-threat to anyone and perhaps even desirable to increase. $300 million in necessary road expansion costs deferred thanks to BRT. Well, I can take that two ways. Either the necessary road expansions, expansions are now road contractions where BRT will be running, or they simply won't be improving any roads necessary to accommodate the 25% increase in cars expected. 40% of Londoners will have a BRT stop within walking distance of their home. Well, I hope to be among the 60% that's as far away from a BRT stop as possible. 60% of Londoners will be able to walk to work from new BRT stops and stations. Oh boy, walking to work. Human legs, rapid transit. <laughs> Revitalize 24 kilometers of main arterials that serve as gateways into our city. Now, I have absolutely no idea what that means or how it would directly relate to BRT. But I'm sure if you go to one of the meetings, they'll explain all these things to you. <laughs> and by the way, the brochure has three anonymous endorsements on the back panel from Peter M., Raquel L., and Mike B. We need to make sure the city grows in an organized, coherent way and has the infrastructure to support that, says the mysterious Mr. M. One of the reasons I'm excited about BRT is it'll give us another choice of how to get, get around that will be convenient and reliable, says Ms. L. And if we want to attract and retain citizens who will be able to commute to and from work without having to own a vehicle, then we need this system, says the mysterious Mr. B. Well, really? Is, is that who we want to attract? People who don't want cars, who can't afford cars? I mean, that's kind of anti-progress, isn't it? The bottom line is that there is not one single objective or reliable quote-unquote fact or statistic offered in this brochure. The only fact revealed is an indirect one, and that is that our municipal councillors and mayor are in favour of this monstrous boondoggle that will not improve London one bit, but will utterly destroy its nature. You know, I guess you can go ahead and do that if you want to. But it, it's utterly unnecessary. There's no need for this. There are so many other ways to achieve what you call rapid transit. A lot of them. But they keep passing laws against them, right? Think of the resistance against Uber. How long it took just Uber to come in, which was creating rapid transit. By the way, everything about this plan runs exactly counter, again, to the proper principles of municipal growth that we reviewed so many times in the past, which were elaborated on by Andres Duaney. And already we can see the results of municipal planning in the city, and it's been getting progressively worse year after year. Just a week or so ago, as I said, many of the city's main roads were closed due to flooding. And, and, and then they have all those you know, traffic calming measures and all those other things that really make people angry. And meanwhile, in other truly progressive cities, Uber and other transit competitors are already instituting systems that are infinitely superior to this multi-billion dollar rip-up-the-city plans to improve travel time by two minutes. 
They've got carpooling. They've cut, they're cutting their Uber expenses by 75% for people who want to walk just down to the corner to a station. You don't need to rip up the roads and spend billions of dollars to get people to meet together to get a ride. Come on. Consider the implications of what happens when anything is run by government. In their February 24th editorial, the Post Media Network ran an editorial with the headline, quote, Ontario Grits, and that means liberals, botch car charging network. The plan in 2016 was to spend $20 million building a network of 500 charging stations to make it easier for electric car owners to travel between and within Ontario cities. But it's hardly shocking, if you'll forgive the pun, they say, to learn the Liberals have once again utterly mismanaged a program they promised to deliver. Then they cite an exclusive Toronto Sun report by Jenny Yoon, and they note that, quote, the program's almost a year behind schedule, 45% of the charging stations due to be constructed by March 2017, that's last year, are still outstanding. The majority of the new charging stations are located in Toronto and the the GTA, which is arguably already saturated with public charging stations. Some uses and industry insiders are calling the program a screw-up and failure, not only because of the delays, but also because they say charging stations frequently sit unused, malfunction, and are in disrepair and customer service is poor. Sound familiar? The government lacks the ability to track basic data about charging systems, whether they are used or how often. Well, why should the government care? It's not a government function, you see? This is why government should never be in business. Now, governments don't need such information. What they need to know is how much money they can extract from the taxpayer. Government never is held accountable for economic failures, which basically account for almost 100% of all government programs. They're all economic failures. That's why they're taxpayer-funded. Almost without exception, any words used by politicians and governments in their communications will mean the exact opposite of what those words would normally mean in reality. You can almost count on that. When a politician tells you that something's affordable, then you know that it's not affordable. You know, like affordable housing, which was a term used for the people who can't afford housing. It's unaffordable. Like the word investment, when they're talking about tax expenditures and waste. So let's face it, the only rapid transit that BRT offers is a quick ride to the left, off to the collective, sit in the crowd. Of all the cities in Canada, geez, London does not need this red elephant in our midst. For the most part, under most conditions, you can still get from one end of the city to the other in 20 or 30 minutes, and that should improve naturally if the politicians wouldn't keep interfering. We could be the first to avoid this disaster, you know, and set a, set a precedent and let our municipality grow naturally, but that would only be possible by getting rid of centralized municipal planning, which puts politicians and bureaucrats ahead of the people who actually live in the community. And that's the reality of it. We can, we can solve these problems in other ways. But for our part, as always, we'll be moving in the opposite direction of the left. So join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. And be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be I'm going to say a word, and then you respond with the first word that comes into your mind. Are you ready? Boy, girl, black, white, win, lose. Very good. Very bad. Stop. Go. No, no. Yes, yes. (laughs) All right.
all wrong. 